This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. If you're interested in crazy stories from the wild world of organized crime, scams, gangs, cartels, mafias, drug dealers, and everything fun like that, have we got a podcast for you. The Underworld Podcast is hosted by two conflict journalists, Danny Gold and Sean Williams, who have reported on all sorts of dangerous people in dangerous places. Every week, they bring you a new episode on international organized crime from a new corner of the globe. You can find the Underworld podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. In October 1992, attendees of the 11th Institute for Historical Review Conference in Irvine, California, gathered to watch a video recording of a speech by Wolf Rudiger Hess, son of Rudolf Hess, Adolf Hitler's loyal deputy Fuhrer. The Institute for Historical Review is an Orange County, California-based organization known for its anti-Semitic views and publication of propaganda materials espousing Holocaust denial. Until his death in 2001, Wolf remained a vocal proponent of the theory that his father, who was sentenced to life imprisonment at the Nuremberg trials after Germany's defeat in World War II, did not commit suicide by hanging in Spandau prison, as official reports claimed. Instead, Wolf insisted Hess was murdered at the age of 93 by the British Secret Intelligence Service. Wolf closed his speech with the words, quote, I am convinced that history and justice will absolve my father. His courage in risking his life for peace, the long injustice he endured, and his martyrdom will not be forgotten. He will be vindicated, and his final words at the Nuremberg trial, I regret nothing, will stand forever. He didn't come to the table empty-handed. Among other things, Wolf had an autopsy report that indicated evidence of forceful strangulation in his father's supposed suicide. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories on the ParCast Network. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. 
I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to Parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of Parcast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. Today we're talking about the intriguing controversy surrounding Rudolf Hess's 1987 death inside Spandau prison. Spandau housed Nazi war criminals sentenced to prison time at the Nuremberg trials. It was Hess's home for almost 50 years, longer than anyone else convicted at Nuremberg. According to the official report released by the Allied powers responsible for administering the prison, Hess died from suicide by hanging. But not everyone believes that. This week, we'll be looking at two theories about what really happened to Rudolf Hess. Conspiracy theory number one, which was advocated tirelessly by Hess's son, Wolf. What was officially presented as death by suicide was actually a cold-blooded murder. And conspiracy theory number two, the man who flew to Scotland fell into British captivity, received a conviction at the Nuremberg trials, served a life sentence in Spandau prison, and died in 1987, was not Rudolf Hess at all, but an imposter doing all that in Hess's name. First, let's dig into theory number one. The basic gist of this theory is that Hess's flight from Bavaria to Scotland was an official peace mission that Hitler not only knew about, but sanctioned. Hess offered the British a generous peace treaty, which the British rejected. Once World War II was over, the British government became concerned about what would happen if the public found out they'd turned down a treaty that would have prevented the war's bloodshed and destruction. So they locked Hess up for the rest of his life to keep him from spilling the secret. But in 1987, it was looking like the elderly Hess was about to be released from Spandau to spend his final days in peace. Well, the British government couldn't risk him revealing the truth once he was out from under their watchful eye, so they murdered him, lest the world find out how easily Britain could have ended the war. This theory relies on a lot of assumptions, and to understand them, we have to understand the person behind these claims, Rudolf's son, Wolf Hess. As we mentioned in part one, on the morning of May 10, 1941, the day Rudolf Hess took off from augsburg honstetten airfield on his infamous flight to Scotland, he spent an inordinate amount of time with his three-and-a-half-year-old son, Wolf. His wife, Ilza, wasn't quite sure why at the time, but she later realized that her husband had been lavishing attention upon their son because he was afraid he might never see him again. It did indeed turn out to be the last time Hess would see his son for almost 30 years, and the last time he'd see him at all as a free man. 
Wolf would, however, receive many letters from his imprisoned father. Hess's letters to both Wolf and Ilza show a keen fatherly interest, ranging from affectionate advice to casual discussions about art, music, sports, science, and technology. Hess wanted to be an involved father, even from the confines of Spandau. The fact that Rudolph worked so hard to keep the relationship alive may have created an intimacy that could explain why Wolf fought so hard for so many years to get his father out of prison, and later to prove that his death was a murder. It's certainly possible that Wolf was driven more by emotions than he was by facts. But before we start to imply that Wolf was just a loyal son, trying to help his old man retire in freedom, it's important to point out that he was... Well, a Nazi. In the 1992 video address to the Institute for Historical Review Conference that we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, Wolf expressed deep sympathies for Hitler and his cause. He also spoke highly of Mein Kampf, describing it as a seminal work, and complained that his father, in 1919, after returning from hard combat in World War I, had to witness a Bavaria run by communists and Jews. Wolf Hess also spoke about World War II as a patriotic struggle only made necessary by British irrationality, justifying every move of German aggression as a reluctant last resort, after all of Hitler's benevolent offers for peace were arrogantly rejected. And even though he spoke at length about the politics and logistics of the war, he never mentioned the persecution of Jews, the SS, concentration camps, or the Holocaust. I feel like we should also point out that the fact that Wolf Hess harbored Nazi sympathies doesn't prove that his theory about his father's death, or anything else he says for that matter, is wrong. We really want to avoid using a logical fallacy known as poisoning the well, where unflattering information is presented about a person in order to discredit anything they say. Absolutely. It would also be illogical to assume that Wolf promoted his theory just because his political cause would have something to gain if people believe it. In fact, that would be a circumstantial ad hominem argument. A claim that someone's assumed benefit from winning an argument proves that their position is wrong. But... Even though none of this conclusively proves anything, it is part of the complete picture and worth considering. Speaking of the complete picture, Wolf definitely did not believe that the official story contained it. For one thing, he took issue with the idea that his father's flight to Scotland was his own secret brainchild. He believed that not only did Hitler know about the flight in advance, but it was an officially sanctioned peace mission. And since it was an officially sanctioned peace mission, the British eventually had to murder Hess to conceal that they had imprisoned a benevolent diplomat who had presented them with an opportunity to end the war and prevent immeasurable strife. Wolf gave five justifications for believing that Hess's peace mission was official. First, he claimed that a few days before the flight, his father met privately with Hitler for four hours. The two of them raised their voices for parts of the meeting, and when they came out, Hitler put his arm around Rudolf Hess's shoulder and said, quote, Hess, you really are stubborn, end quote. Wolf didn't mention how he knew about this meeting or where it took place. I consider myself pretty open-minded, but that's a tough one to take seriously since he doesn't even know what they talked about in the meeting. 
Wolf himself was only three years old, so I doubt he would have understood what was going on. His second justification is the notion that Hess and Hitler's relationship was so strong and intimate that, quote, one can logically assume that Hess would not have undertaken such an important step in the middle of a war without first informing Hitler, end quote. If we bought that one, we'd have to take for granted that their relationship was still close. And that's hard to believe, considering that Hitler had recently banned Hess from flying and relegated him to third in line for succession. And even if they were close, can a person not go behind the back of someone they're close to? It does seem like quite a stretch. Here's the third justification. Wolf admits that Hess's adjutants and secretaries were rounded up and incarcerated after the flight. But he doesn't think Hitler would have done two specific things if Hess had disobeyed him, made sure Ilse got a pension, and sent a condolences telegram to Rudolf Hess's mother when his father died six months after the flight. We couldn't find any neutral sources to verify either the pension or the telegram, though that doesn't prove they didn't happen. Hitler is pretty well established as a vengeful maniac. If Hitler really did send the pension and the telegram, it does seem odd that he would do something so nice for the family of a guy who stabbed him in the back. Here's the fourth one. We mentioned in part one that Hess wrote three letters right before his first suicide attempt in 1941. One to his family, one to Wolf, and one to Hitler, trying to attach some sort of significance to his failed peace mission. Well, according to Wolf, two of those letters prove that Hess and Hitler still had a trusting relationship, and by extension, that Hess couldn't, or at least in all likelihood wouldn't, have flown to Scotland without Hitler's knowledge. The letter to Hitler has a lot of praise, bordering on worship, really. He told Hitler that for the last two decades, the Fuhrer had fulfilled his life and made it worth living again, that he'd been reborn for Hitler, that he salutes their greater Germany through Hitler, that kind of thing. Sounds more like sucking up than intimacy. Agreed. However, he did also say that he commends his relatives, including his aging parents, to Hitler's care. That's something a close friend might say, and it could explain why Ilse got the pension and Hesse's mother got the condolences. Well, the other letter, the one to Ilse, promises that, quote, For you and Buzz and my parents, the Fuhrer will provide. I wouldn't accept this as incontrovertible proof, but it does add some weight to his argument. Finally, the fifth reason Wolf thought Hitler knew about the flight, because Ernst Wilhelm Bula thought so. I should clarify, Bula was the leader of the Nazi party's foreign organization, which kept tabs on party members living abroad. He worked under Hess and was considered a confidant. Wolf didn't say why he thought Bula would know this, at least not in any of our sources. I don't think we have enough information to give weight to that one either way. I won't argue with that. So maybe Hitler knew about Hess's flight, maybe not. But Hitler's presumed knowledge of the 1941 peace mission flight is crucial to Wolf's conspiracy theory. Wolf claimed that during his father's entire 40-plus years as a prisoner, a gag order prevented Hess from saying anything openly about his peace mission. 
Wolf reasoned that this restriction was imposed because Hess held secrets that would seriously embarrass the British, and possibly US and Soviet governments, if they leaked to the public. The secrets at stake were the exact content of Hess's peace proposals, which Wolf thought were so blatantly reasonable that the Allies, and Britain in particular, would seem cruel and warlike for rejecting them. Although there are no documents to prove this, Wolf maintained that Hess's conversation with the Duke of Hamilton involved an elaborate list of peace proposals that included generous concessions to Britain. He claimed Germany offered Britain continued hegemony at sea and continued influence over certain parts of the Mediterranean, Middle East, and Africa. But it wasn't all olive branches. The alleged peace proposals also requested free reign for Germany over continental Europe without British interference, including total disarmament of France. Not a small request. No. Nevertheless, Wolf maintained that if Britain would have accepted these terms, Hitler never would have attacked Russia, and the war would have, quote, withered away on all fronts. He blames Churchill and Franklin D. Roosevelt for unimaginable death and suffering by rejecting the, quote, outstretched hand of peace. Let's assume for the moment that Hess presented all these offers to the British, that they were rejected, and that the British were so wary of letting the details leak that they kept Hess shushed for the rest of his life. It's still worth discussing why they waited until 1987 to murder him. Absolutely. As we explored in part one, conditions in Spandau started out extremely harsh in the period immediately following World War II. Hess's communication with the outside world was heavily censored. He wasn't allowed any visitors until 1952, and even then, only one visitor a month for 30 minutes until the early 70s, when the limit increased to an hour. He wasn't allowed to read any books that mentioned the Nazi period of German history or the Nuremberg trials. But over time, as the outside world changed, so did conditions inside Spandau. Although the censorship never went away, public pressure led to better treatment for Hess, especially after 1966, when Albert Speer and Baldur von Schirach were released and Hess became Spandau's sole occupant. A lot of people considered his imprisonment inhumane and called for his release. Eventually, it was pretty much universally understood that Britain, France, and the United States were in favor of releasing Hess, but that the Soviets were using their veto power to keep him inside. With an estimated 20 to 27 million war-related deaths, the Soviet Union had suffered more than anyone else from Nazi aggression. Showing mercy toward a guy who had played such a big role in that conflict was understandably not high on Moscow's priority list. But as the Soviet Union liberalized under Mikhail Gorbachev and began to shed its reputation for strictness and cruelty, Wolf Hess saw an opportunity. He sent a letter to the Soviet consulate in Bonn and met with the embassy counselor on March 31, 1987, incidentally, on the same day as his last visit with his father. The counselor allegedly revealed that an influential faction inside the USSR supported Hess's release, including Gorbachev himself. 
Well, there is external evidence to back this claim up. On April 13, 1987, the German news magazine Der Spiegel reported that Gorbachev had adopted the view that releasing Hess would be, quote, accepted worldwide as a gesture of humanity. Wolf thought that this possibility made the British and Americans scramble. They'd been bluffing about wanting to release Hess all along, trying to maintain the illusion of humanitarianism while relying on the Soviets to keep Hess and his secrets locked away. Unfortunately, Wolf's efforts were too little, too late. On Monday, August 17, 1987, at 6.35 p.m., Wolf received a call informing him that his father had died. Spandau's American director told him, quote, I am authorized to inform you that your father expired today at 4.10 p.m. I am not authorized to give you any further details, end quote. When we come back, we'll examine Wolf's interpretation of the evidence, then dive into the provocative claims of conspiracy theory number two, that the man murdered in Spandau was actually just a Rudolf Hess impersonator. And now, back to the story. The British government might have had a motive to murder Rudolf Hess in 1986, but our conspiracy theories don't stop there. Hess's son Wolf also took issue with the official report and autopsy, a sentiment he shared with Hugh Thomas, the main proponent of conspiracy theory number two. Although both Wolf and Thomas believed that the man who died in Spandau on August 17, 1987, was murdered by the British, they differed on a key point. Wolf maintained until his own death in 2001 that the prisoner was actually his father. Thomas, however, wrote and published a 195-page book arguing that the prisoner was a mere look-alike. We'll discuss that theory a little later, but first, let's explore three reasons both Wolf Hess and Hugh Thomas believed the prisoner, whoever he was, was murdered. We'll start with the first reason. The prisoner was supposedly too weak to hang himself. The initial official report from the Allies claimed that in the afternoon of August 17, 1987, Hess, in accordance with his routine, went into a summer house in the prison garden. A few minutes later, a guard looked inside and found Hess with an electrical cord tied around his neck. Prison staff tried unsuccessfully to resuscitate him, eventually taking him to the British military hospital, where staffers also failed to revive him. He was declared dead at 4.10 p.m. The report also claimed that it seemed like a suicide attempt, but that a thorough investigation, including an autopsy, was forthcoming. The second report came a month later, confirming suicide as the cause of death. It alleged that Hess had hanged himself from a window latch with a suicide note addressed to his family in his pocket. The official autopsy, performed by the British physician Dr. Malcolm Cameron and supervised by medical representatives from the Four Powers, claimed to find a mark on the side of Hess's neck consistent with a ligature and that the likely cause of death was asphyxia by suspension. Wolf and Thomas didn't buy it. According to Wolf, his 93-year-old father had no strength in his hands and struggled to even move from his cell to the garden. Wolf couldn't imagine how Hess could have pulled off a suicide by hanging. Thomas concurred with Wolf on that point. We mentioned that Thomas was a physician who briefly provided medical care to Hess. Well, 
prisoner number seven, as he called the alleged imposter in his book. The book characterizes the elderly prisoner as weak, uncertain of his gait, limited in his vision, unbalanced, and poorly postured. It also vividly describes the prisoner's spinal stoop and difficulties turning his head, claiming that in 1984, it had become so dangerous for him to stand up that prison authorities lowered his washroom mirror to waist height. According to Thomas, prisoner number seven, quote, could not possibly have committed suicide in the way which has been suggested, end quote. I'm keeping an open mind. If Hess, or whoever the prisoner was, was 93 years old and feeble, it doesn't seem that far-fetched to claim that suicide by hanging might have been beyond his abilities. Fair enough. Let's move on to reason number two, that Wolf and Thomas both believe the prisoner was murdered. The testimony of a medical orderly named Abdallah Malawi. Malawi was a Tunisian civilian working at Spandau when the prisoner died. Wolf believed this was significant. He claimed that because Malawi was non-military and not a citizen of any of the four allied powers running the prison, he couldn't be silenced or exiled, and therefore his testimony was credible. Can a government really not silence someone who isn't a citizen? That sounds like a big assumption. I can't make sense of it either. In Wolf's telling, Malawi contacted his family after the death and told them that when he arrived at the scene after being delayed by guards, he saw Hess lying lifeless on the ground while an American guard stood nearby looking frazzled. The furniture had been thrown around as though there'd been a struggle. And there were two calm strangers in U.S. military uniforms, which he thought was unusual, since no soldiers were allowed in the area. Malawi actually went on the BBC Two program Newsnight in 1989 to tell this story. He also corroborated Wolfe's and Thomas's claims that the prisoner was too sick to hang himself. Colonel Tony Letissiere, the British governor of Spandau Prison, responded to Malawi's claims by saying that the delay in his arrival was not because the guards delayed him on purpose, but because they had so much trouble finding Malawi, and that even the record of his sign-in shows that there wasn't really much of a delay between the death and Malawi's arrival anyway. Letissiere explained the American strangers in military uniforms by saying they weren't soldiers, but medics who had been called to help resuscitate Hess, and even did so while Malawi was there. The furniture had been pushed out of the way during their earlier resuscitation attempts. That makes sense to me. While we're on the subject, another notable Newsnight guest related to the Hess case was a University of Munich professor named Dr. Wolfgang Spahn who performed a second autopsy on the body. In the late 80s, he went on the show to discuss his findings. He claimed that the marks on the body did not resemble those typical of a hanging. Both Wolf and Thomas pointed to Spahn's autopsy as evidence that the prisoner had been murdered. Colonel Letissiere took issue with that second autopsy. He reasoned that the marks didn't look like typical hanging marks because it wasn't a typical hanging. Instead of suspending himself from the ceiling with his feet above the floor, the prisoner had tied the cord to a window latch and slumped onto the floor with his feet in front of him. And again, not to rely on ad hominem evidence for a final conclusion, but Spahn did perform his autopsy at the request of the Hess family. 
we have to consider the possibility that his results were influenced by the Hess family's agenda. Hmm. Wolf had a couple other reasons for believing the prisoner was murdered that Thomas didn't get into. We'll go over them quickly before we get into Thomas's imposter theory. Well, the first is probably the thing I find most convincing about the murder theory and has to do with the very short alleged suicide note. Here's the note in its entirety. Quote, Please, would the governor send this home? Written a few minutes before my death. I thank you all. My beloved, for all the dear things you have done for me. Tell Freiburg I am extremely sorry that since the Nuremberg trial, I had to act as though I didn't know her. I had no choice, because otherwise all attempts to gain freedom would have been in vain. I had so looked forward to seeing her again. I did get pictures of her, as of you all, your eldest. According to Wolf, his father hadn't referred to himself as your eldest in 20 years. The note is also mainly about Freiburg, Hess's former private secretary. Wolf argued that his father was concerned about reconciling with Freiburg in 1969, when he was close to dying from a perforated ulcer, but that in 1987, there was no reason for him to say any of that. Wolf also claimed that Hess had a very precise way of expressing himself, and that if he had truly intended to commit suicide, the note would have said so outright, instead of simply using the term, my death. And finally, the note was missing a date, which Wolf alleged wasn't like his father, who had dated every written communication without fail for over 40 years. For these reasons, Wolf concluded that the note was a forgery, based on a 20-year-old unsent letter that Hess had written when he thought he was about to die from a perforated ulcer. I have to say, that one is pretty hard to argue with. The note seems so terse for a man's final words to his family, especially a man who had written so affectionately to his family in the past. My thoughts exactly. Wolf had one more argument. He claimed to know a South African lawyer who had connections to, quote, Western Secret Services. This lawyer gave Wolf's wife an affidavit that spelled out the whole story. Secret agents, intricate break-in, elaborate cover-up, the whole deal. Who was this South African lawyer? Uh, anonymous, obviously. I see. It would be intellectually dishonest to take that seriously. Maybe fun reading for someone who's already inclined to believe Wolf, but definitely not empirical evidence by any stretch. Well, we've dug pretty deep into conspiracy theory number one. Well, Molly, do you think Wolf was right that his father was murdered by the British in Spandau prison? I'd have to give that theory a two out of ten. I just can't imagine that the British government would murder an old man to keep a lid on those unimpressive peace terms. I don't think the public would ever fault Churchill or anyone else for rejecting anything that involved letting Hitler stay in power. That just seems like delusional thinking from a guy who doesn't get how repulsive Nazism seems to most people. I completely agree. I can't go any higher than a 2 out of 10 on this one either. Though I don't think Wolf was intentionally lying. If he made up the entire murder theory as a stunt to save his father's legacy, I think he would have built a case that didn't rely so heavily on Nazi sympathies. Wolf campaigned relentlessly for his father's freedom. But he never wavered in the belief that the prisoner at Spandau was indeed Rudolf Hess. Hugh Thomas, not so much. 
When we come back, we'll delve into Hugh Thomas's story and why this accomplished surgeon is absolutely certain that the prisoner who died in Spandau in 1987 was not Rudolf Hess. And now, back to our story. In 1979, British Army surgeon Hugh Thomas published a book introducing the world to our second conspiracy theory. The man claiming to be Rudolf Hess was actually an imposter. His plane was shot down by German forces before he made it to Scotland, and he was replaced by a perfect lookalike who successfully impersonated him for decades. Thomas, like Wolf Hess, holds that the imposter was murdered in 1987 to prevent him from revealing damaging secrets about the British government. There's a lot to unpack here. First of all, Wolf Hess had been visiting the prisoner who claimed to be Hess and corresponding with him through letters for years. If there's anything we should be able to take on faith, it's the ability of a son to recognize his own father. Well, but don't forget, Wolf was only three years old when Hess disappeared from his life, and they supposedly didn't see each other again until he was 32. At that point, you're basically meeting a stranger. And even so, the main components of Hugh Thomas's imposter argument have nothing to do with Hess's correspondences with Wolf. Instead, he built his case on two principal observations. First, details about the plane Hess allegedly flew to Scotland. And second, the time he saw the prisoner's naked body as a medical consultant. Well, let's dig in. Thomas's argument hinges on the assertion that the plane that took off from Augsburg-Haunstetten airfield on May 10, 1941, and the one that crash-landed in Scotland late that night, were actually two different planes. From this, he concludes that the real Hess was shot down somewhere along the way, and a lookalike, who is also an accomplished pilot, took off from another airfield and completed the trip. Thomas admitted that he couldn't figure out exactly who ordered Hess shot down or why, but in what he referred to as, quote, my guess, he suggested that it was Heinrich Himmler, head of the SS. Thomas believed Himmler was trying to usurp Hitler as Fuhrer and saw the loyal and high-ranking Hess as an obstacle. When Himmler found out about Hess's secret peacemaking mission, he didn't want to risk Hess coming home a beloved hero. So, he arranged for Hess's plane to be shot down over the North Sea and replaced by a similar plane flown by a Hess lookalike who would sabotage the mission and ruin Hess's reputation for good. As for the plane itself, Thomas wrote that the plane Hess took off in was a Meerschmidt BF-110 with a radio code marking NJ plus C-11. However, from photos of the wreckage, the plane that crash-landed in Scotland was clearly marked VJ plus OQ. Furthermore, there's no record of the code NJ plus C11 ever being issued in Germany. The main person historians have relied upon in determining the code on Hess's plane is a test pilot named Helmut Kaden, who accompanied Hess on some of his training flights and was responsible for preparing the plane. Cotton has made some of Hess's test flight records available, though others were destroyed in American bombing raids. 
He reported that the plane Hess took off in was marked VJ plus OQ, just like the one that crash-landed in Scotland. Codden also claimed that when Hess flew VJ plus OQ for the first time, he told him that he liked it a lot and requested that it be set aside for his personal use. According to Codden's story, which also became the official story, Hess never flew another plane after choosing VJ plus OQ. Thomas, of course, took issue with that, asserting that Codden's diary recorded the code of the plane Hess took off in as NJ plus C-11. He accused Codden of changing his story only after finding out that the markings on the crash plane were different. If Thomas was just trying to prove that the planes were different, it would have been enough to dispute the code on just a takeoff plane. That's why it's really strange that he also disputed the code on the crashed plane. He claimed that although it was originally VJ plus OQ, like the official story says, it had been changed to NJ plus OQ by adding a brushstroke to the V to make it look like an N. Well, he argues that this was common practice. When the fighters were produced, they were marked with a VJ code, but if they were delivered to a night fighter squadron, the V was changed to an N. A night fighter was just what it sounds like, a plane that had some special modifications for nighttime or low visibility flying. However, Roy Conyers Nesbitt and George Van Acker, co-authors of a book that seeks to debunk conspiracy theories about Hess, claim that night fighter squadrons actually never used NJ codes. Based on more thorough research, this checks out. We figured this would be an easy question to clear up, so we took a look at the photos of the remains and wreckage site. It seems very clear to us that the code is indeed VJOQ, so we're not sure how Thomas got the idea that the first letter was N. If you're wondering what the VN dispute has to do with Thomas's imposter theory, so are we. He never gave any reason for the alleged change in the plane's code, except to cast doubt on the trustworthiness of the official sources. Ironically, in my mind, the whole manufactured controversy just undermines Thomas's own credibility. Thomas also had some things to say about the capabilities of the Messerschmitt 110 plane. However many were involved, he held that the 110 didn't have enough range to get from Bavaria to Scotland in a single flight, even with the biggest possible drop tanks installed on the wings. His figures calculated the plane's fuel capacity at 2,800 liters, with a maximum range of 1,932 kilometers. He pegged the flight distance at 2,093 kilometers. However, the official specs for the plane disagree. With the appropriate modifications, it could hold 3,070 liters of fuel, not just 2,800, giving it a range of 2,000 kilometers. An official Luftwaffe calculation of Hess's flight calculated his total distance at 1,953 kilometers and his total fuel consumption at 2,950 liters, even factoring in activities that consume extra fuel, such as rapid climbing. 
According to these figures, it would have been entirely possible for Hess to get from Augsburg Haunstetten to Scotland without refueling, let alone being shot down and replaced by an imposter pilot. It's hard to take issue with official specs, since the plane Hess used was mass-produced, and the specs should be undisputed general knowledge. The official Luftwaffe calculation of Hess's flight, though, I could see that being embellished to protect the official story. Maybe. If it was an imposter who flew to Scotland, Germany definitely wouldn't have wanted anyone to know. Let's talk about the area where Thomas might have some real authority, the medical stuff. As we mentioned earlier, Thomas was a former army surgeon who tended to the prisoner known as Rudolf Hess as a surgical consultant in 1973. He describes the whole encounter in intense detail in his book, but we'll give you an abridged version. In 1973, after some Soviet resistance, the four powers decided it was time to take the 79-year-old prisoner to a hospital for some x-rays to see if anything worrisome was going on inside his body. Although he wasn't exhibiting any particular symptoms, his medical care inside Spandau had been dismal up to that point, and the commander of the British military hospital recommended taking the precaution. The transfer was a big deal, involving a motorcade and armed soldiers keeping the throngs of citizens and press at bay. The examination itself was attended not only by the necessary doctors, but by a multitude of other people. Members of the hospital staff, commanders from other allied hospitals, Spandau officials, and British soldiers. In Thomas's telling, what was supposed to be a medical event turned into a social occasion, with most of the people there coming just for the sake of seeing the last Nazi criminal at Spandau. Thomas mentions a lavish lunch table with alcohol and salmon sandwiches. Thomas claimed he didn't drink while on duty, but that the sandwiches were excellent. The scene sounds ridiculous, but the most ridiculous thing about it, according to Thomas, was Voitev. Spandau's ranking Russian. Anytime someone would show the prisoner a little bit of human kindness, Voitev would scream in Russian, stop, that is contrary to the Nuremberg Agreement, or no comfort, it is against the spirit of the convention. As a staffer at the hospital, Thomas was there for the hours of various tests performed on the prisoner, but he wasn't directly assigned to perform any of them. Still, he had studied up on Hess's medical history, including his World War I wound record, and was eager for the chance to look at him. A quick aside on that wound record, it shows a pea-sized wound where a bullet entered his chest, with an exit wound in his back the size of a cherry pit. It happened in Romania on July 23, 1917. There were others, but that was the big one. The bullet damaged his lung. Okay, back to the hospital. There was no way Thomas could approach the prisoner closely enough with Voitev in the room. But at the same moment the exam was ending and the prisoner was taking off his hospital gown, Voitev happened to leave the room. Seizing the moment, Thomas moved close to the prisoner and looked over his naked body for a few seconds. In a moment of what he describes as bewilderment, Thomas ascertained that the prisoner had no scars from any of the wounds reported on Hess's war record. Then, under the pretense of helping, he offered to take the prisoner's gown, buying him a few more seconds to stare at his naked body, again finding no evidence of the purported wounds. 
He spent the rest of the evening stunned. The doctors decided a few days later that the x-rays had missed a spot, so the prisoner was brought back to the hospital. Thomas claimed that in contrast to the first visit, this time the patient was cheerful and smiley, taking an interest in what was happening and making pleasant small talk in English. Until, that is, Thomas casually asked him what happened to his war wounds. I'll just quote Thomas's book here. The question had a startling effect. The patient's manner changed instantly. From being in a sunny, cheerful mood, he turned chalk white and began to shake. For an instant, he stared at me in what appeared bewilderment or even utter disbelief. Then he looked down and avoided my eyes. After what felt like ages, he muttered, Zuspet, Zuspet. Too late, too late. And I'll paraphrase the next part. The patient stood up and made his way toward the changing room, leaving behind him a torrent of diarrhea. Is that what happens when someone exposes your biggest secret? I hope I never find out. The prisoner avoided Thomas for the rest of the visit. From that moment on, Thomas became absolutely certain that the man who flew to Scotland, stood trial at Nuremberg, served a life sentence in Spandau, and died in captivity on August 17, 1987, was not Rudolf Hess, but an imposter sent in his stead. It's beyond the scope of this podcast to get into the minutia of Thomas's arguments about the nature of bullet wounds and scars. He goes into painstaking detail that's hard to question if you don't have medical training. But one significant point he made that's worth mentioning is that scars never disappear. They fade over time, but they never go away completely. He reasoned that if the prisoner had genuinely been Hess, he would have seen some evidence of the scars of some kind, but he couldn't find any at all during his quick, unauthorized examination. For their book, Nesbitt and Van Acker, the authors who tried to debunk Hughes' theory, consulted a forensic pathologist named Bernard Knight to ask if it was possible that these scars could have become invisible to the naked eye. I'll paraphrase Knight's answer. Quote, not likely, but sure, especially if you don't know where to look, end quote. There was also a French pastor in Spandau named Charles Gabel, who wrote a book about his conversations with the prisoner. According to Gabel, when Thomas's book came out and he told the prisoner about it, Hess, quote, laughed heartily and told me that two British doctors, the director of the military hospital and a surgeon, had visited him to look at these famous scars, which they found, although they were not very visible. I suppose there's a chance the prisoner could have lied to Gabel about the scars, as you would expect an imposter to. But there's also a good chance Hess's scars actually had faded over the decades, to the point where Thomas couldn't see them from a few feet away. There is one more piece of evidence we need to discuss. As a result of Thomas's conspiracy mongering, forensic scientists from the University of Salzburg in Austria dug up an old blood sample from the prisoner and performed a DNA test, comparing it to a living Hess relative. The results, which were published on January 22, 2019, confirmed that there was a 99.99% chance the prisoner was indeed Rudolf Hess. That's the nail in the coffin for me. But based on everything we know, 
What do you think of conspiracy theory number two? Was the man who died in Spandau an imposter? I have to say one out of ten. Thomas's entire theory is based on a few seconds of looking at the prisoner's body for scars. That doesn't exactly hold up against DNA evidence. Another glaring thing about the theory that really sticks out to me is the motivations of the imposter himself. Why would anyone throw their life away in prison for almost half a century and never mention anything to anyone about it? That is a smart question that deserves a good answer, and Thomas never gave one. Both of these conspiracy theories may be far-fetched, but I have to give at least a little respect to anyone with a fervent commitment to finding the truth, even if their version of it doesn't agree with the facts. Indeed. However, in this case, we believe the official story is most likely the truth. Rudolf Hess was captured as a prisoner of war while on a rogue peace mission and sentenced to life imprisonment at the Nuremberg Trials. And on August 17, 1987, at the age of 93, he took his own life. It's understandable that Hess's son would be reluctant to accept such a lonely end to his father's long and lonely life. But given Hess's history of suicide attempts, the official story of his death isn't surprising. After his lifetime of well-deserved punishment, I think it's finally time to let the last Nazi war criminal rest in silence, if not in peace. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by Jeff Fiesel and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.